You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender. Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change. Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion. Eats Papa Lotl, a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. This episode is part of our Women of Myth series where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology. It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard. It's available wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you. Salome gets a bad rap. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Today, we're so happy to welcome Princess Onika Auguste to the show. Welcome! Thank you! It's good good to be here. (laughs) Princess Onika Auguste is a Caribbean feminist scholar, author, and theologian from St. Lucia. She holds a Master's of Divinity with a concentration in Church History and the New Testament, and a Master of Theological Studies in Biblical Studies with certificates in Medieval History and Medieval Religion. She's also an author of poetry, romance, fantasy, and historical fiction. Princess, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so happy to have you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Let's talk about Caribbean folklore and religion. Who are some of your favorite heroines, and why do you love them? Well... I actually like Mami Water. Us too. <laughs> we cover her in our books, so we also love her. Um, in St. Lucia, we call her Mama de Um, She's the protector of the um, rivers, and she's married to Papa Bois. And she's one of those people, well, deities or spirits that is not evil. You know, there's nothing evil about her. I haven't heard any stories about her luring men or um you know killing people. Um she's the the protector and healer of all river animals. She is the kind of Caribbean mermaid because um she is half woman and then some legends say that her whole body is of a snake. Yes, yeah, so it's the archetype of the mermaid in the Caribbean. I just everything of because I like mermaids <laughs> Mami Water is one of my favorites, and she comes from the French, French and African mixed together folklore. You, you know about Mami Water, Mama, or as we call it in Saint Lucia, Mama de Glow in Trinidad and Tobago, Dominica, Martinique, Guadeloupe, and those are either once colonized by the French or are now French overseas territories. I don't know everything about her. I like. And then she know her, she does have a golden comb that she passes through her hair, which is sneaky. It's interesting, too, that you said the thing about her not being a seductress, which is really novel in a, in a lot of stuff that we looked at in the book. Not not everywhere, like, but a lot of the uh, 
a lot of people we found who were um, who were women had a seductress element if they were also described as very beautiful. Yeah, I cannot find any legend or story about her that says that she lures men to the death, like you know that the mermaids or the sirens do. What are some of her special powers? I don't remember. All I know is that she's a protector of the rivers and the ocean. In our book, Women of Myth, we covered both Mamiwata and Oya, both of whom are still actively worshipped in the Caribbean today. Have you heard of Oya too? Well, I wrote a piece on my Patreon about her. Oya is the Arsha of winds or storms. Outside of all the Greek and Roman mythology, every myth is focused on Greek and Roman warrior gods and goddesses. And to a lesser extent, we get we do get some Egyptian. When you hear about mythology, you think of Egyptian mythology, Roman, Greek. And to a lesser extent, Norse uh, mythology. So I decided last year to do something called, I'm still doing it, on my Patreon called Warrior Women of Mythology and History. And Oya was the first one I did. She is an African and African diaspora deity or goddess. She's a warrior goddess. She's the goddess of storms, wind, thunderbolts, rebirth, and death. You don't really get, like in the Greek and Roman mythologies, you don't really get a warrior goddess who is also the goddess of rebirth. And you don't get a warrior, a goddess who is has the thunderbolts in Greek and Roman mythology. That's Zeus or Jupiter. And in Norse mythology, it's Thor. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of anyone in... um. We did some Celtic mythology as well, and there's no one there who is storms that I can think of either. You have warrior goddesses, but they're not um, thunder and lightning weather goddesses. Yeah. In Greek mythology, the goddess of rebirth is Persephone and Demeter, but neither Demeter or her daughter are goddesses of winds and storms. That is associated with Zeus in Greek mythology. That's incredible. She was one of my favorites because I loved I loved how transformative she was. She had destructive properties, but she also had renewal properties. So it's kind of like sweeping away all the things about your life you need to change. You know, like that was my personal connection to her. She has both male and feminine attributes. She is the goddess of war. Well, she's a warrior goddess. She's a she's um goddess of thunderbolt. She's goddess of wind, strong lightning violent storms and then on the other hand she's the goddess of rebirth and i know that oya is just not known only known in africa but throughout the african diaspora she appears in haitian voodoo folk Catholicism, santeria and she's married to shango but she's not his favorite wife is oshan how could oya not be anyone's favorite wife <laughs> <laughs> what's oshan the goddess of love and fertility Shango is like the, the god of thunder, lightning, justice. And so he already has that warrior kind of thing with him. So he, he's probably just looking for somebody soft and for him to just go and lay down his hair. You don't need to be thinking about war and all that kind of thing. So maybe that's why Oshan is his favorite goddess. <laughs> oh, it's sort of like a, an opposites attract kind of a thing because he and Oya are very similar in that way. I know. <laughs> it's like an Aries and Ephrodite thing. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, Ocean, Beyonce called upon her, evoked her in her, in her Lemonade album. Lemonade album has a lot of Ocean attributes, Ocean symbolism. In the holder, I think it's the holder video, she's dressing a yellow dress. As, the yellow is Ocean's um, color. She's underwater, whatever, and so there's a lot of symbolism within. Oshana, when she performed, I think she performed at the Grammys or whatever, she was pregnant with one of her kids. I think the twins she was pregnant with, and she was performing as Oshan. She got a lot of backlash because, you know, that's pagan, satanic, and everything like that. <laughs> but it, it just makes so much sense because she's, you know, she's very pregnant and she's portraying a fertility goddess, you know? Yeah. Oshan is the goddess of love, divinity, fertility, beauty, femininity, 
and she's connected to destiny and divination. She's a river deity among the Yoba people in Nigeria. That's why Beyonce, when Beyonce was invoking her in the um in the hold up video, she was underwater and everything like that. Oh, Oshan is also the um is also the goddess of purity. Interesting. As a fertility goddess, that's an interesting combo. The West has a different concept, especially Western Christianity has a different concept of purity than other religions have. So love and fertility in those days could be associated with purity. I think when I when I hear that word, I think about sexual purity. So like virginity. Well, if you look at it in a Christian kind of way, yes. Purity is freedom from immorality especially of a sexual nature. You know, it makes sense that, like, under different lenses, like, having sex is not necessarily an impure act. I guess if you're tying it to sexuality, like, having immoral sex would be an impure act, but not just sex in general. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What What is immoral sex? That's a question. I'm just like, if you're cheating on your spouse, right? <laughs> Because immoral sex can mean different things for different people. Conservative Christians and conserv- and people from other conservative religions believe sex before marriage is impure, is immoral. Others don't. So your definition, what is, depends on your definition of immoral. Right, exactly. I do not think that that is immoral, but <laughs> some people do. everyone's Takuyi here and I'm Gabby and we are the hosts of History of Everything a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is well I mean it's about everything do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life well if so then look no further History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope, but that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. You wrote a lesbian romance about a female Caribbean monster, the Laja Bless. It's called Laja Bless, A Love Story. We would love for you to tell us about this mythical creature. Well, I wrote a short novel. It's a lesbian fantasy romance novel about the Lager Bless. It's a different take on how people perceive her. She falls in love with this St. Lucian woman and they embark on a love affair and they have to find a way to get her to stop being Elijah Bless. Tell me what is Elijah Bless? Elijah Bless is a woman who depends on the story. Some people say that she's mixed race, she's mixed white and black. Uh, some people say she's a white woman and some people say she's a black woman um, who made a deal with the devil. Some stories have different reasons why she um, made a deal with the devil. Some stories say that she was heartbroken and so 
because she was ill-treated and heartbroken, she made the, the deal with the devil. Other stories say that she made too many deals with the devil and, and he claimed her soul. Some people say, oh, she went willingly. So just depends on who you talk to, <laughs> on which story you hear. But the larger breast is, some stories say she's a beautiful woman, but other stories say that's, that's an illusion because from afar she looks beautiful and then when you get close her face is of rotten flesh and then she has a cow foot but the thing about it the larger bird is not technically really evil usually the only people that she goes after in most of the stories is men who um are looking for sexual favors or men who are cheating on their um wives or girlfriends Reminds me a bit of the deer woman in uh, the indigenous mythology of uh, North America. That's kind of what she does. And she, she has the sort of hooves of a deer on her, on her feet. Yeah. The larger bird cast spells on her unsuspecting male victim. She leads him to the forest. She disappears. And the man is confused, running around in the forest until he falls into a river or gets eaten by a wild dog and dies. <laughs> and um you, you can break the spell if you know the story of the larger bless so to break the spell of the larger bless you must turn your clothing inside out and walk home back way away from the area she was spotted in oh gosh <laughs> <laughs> she's not really a i mean i guess you could say that she is because even though men cheat on the why they don't deserve to die you know but she doesn't just um how lure you a man. Most of the stories have her not luring a man just because the man's probably following her because he wants sexual favors from her, or he's cheating on his wife or girlfriend. And and then she doesn't go. I haven't heard any stories of the larger verse going after women or children or whatever. So. We're seeing connections between um, the Laja Bless and a couple of the other women that we covered in the Women of Myth book, but they're in. North America, Native American mythology, and in Morocco. Isha Kinisha, yeah. They're both kind of luring men, men who are sexually unfaithful or men who are, you know, I think in the Dear Woman's case, it's abusing women, like luring them off and then killing them in various ways. I forget with Aisha Kandicha what, what the story was, like why she chooses her victims, but she's also associated with water. She's associated with water. She's definitely a siren. She lures men away. I believe she tramples them to death, I think, with her camel foot. She was from Morocco, and she was um, very much linked to potentially a real woman who lived. It was Portugal, I think. Like, Portugal was invading Morocco, and she was a freedom fighter and lured men onto the beach, supposedly, and then attacked them. And that's where this myth came from. Yeah, she was, like, luring out sort of high-ranking officers and different men, and then she had people waiting in the, in the wings to attack them. Sounds like a cool um, woman. <laughs> if she existed. She's semi-mythical. Semi-mythical, but, like, a lot of the monsters we covered were not really monsters if you scrape the surface. Kind of like the La Jablesse. Yeah. I just popped in my head. One one of the stories of why she um, became a La Jablesse is because she was vain and vanity led her to make deals with the devil, giving him her soul for eternal youth, therefore being transformed into a demon. You can see the overlap there with vanity and the, the Christian influence. And I mean, obviously the deal with the devil, but that, that feels like there's something in that story that, that shows the two cultures kind of mixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wonder, though, which woman in the French West, because the larger West, the story is about the larger West from Caribbean islands and countries that were colonized by the French, like Martinique, Guadeloupe, Trinidad, Tobago, St. Lucia, Dominica, Lesser Stent, Grenada, Haiti. I haven't heard about the larger bless from Haiti. It's probably there. There's probably a version of the larger bless in Haiti. But the rest of the islands is mostly islands that will either they were once colonized by the French or they are now overseas French territories. So I'm thinking like because the story of the larger bless traced back as far as the 19th century. 19th century um Martinique. Martinique um French St. Lucia. So I'm thinking what women or women were doing in the French West Indies to call for such a demonization of women. 
Yeah. And and so often we found that there is a connection between some of these mythological monsters in particular and colonization. Tlajabas is actually French for devil's woman, the devil's woman. So it's I kind of like the French probably had some mythological woman. And then when they interacted with the, the enslaved Africans, that became something else. <laughs> I don't think that this actually authentic or indigenous French mythology. I think a lot of the French mythology will kind of be um, mixed with Roman or Gaul in the days of colonization when they colonized Africa, the Caribbean and Asian or North America. They mix the folklore of the enslaved Africans or the indigenous people. I might be wrong. No, I think you're right. Because when we when we looked at the Gallic people in, in like the ancient world, so much of their cultural exchange was based on interacting with the Romans, interacting with other Celtic peoples and Germanic peoples, just because of where they were like located. I'm not sure that there is something that was wholly unique to them because so much of their culture was changing a lot. And also they were conquered a lot until like you start seeing them becoming the colonizers where then they're mixing their folklore is what we would think of it has already been mixed in with other folklore and then is passed on to whoever they're colonizing. I was wondering um, in your romance novel, the heroine has a Catholic background. Is that right? Yes, because St. Lucia is majority Catholic. Once upon a time, it used to be 90% Catholic, but that's that's a result of the, we were once a French colony. The French and the British fought for seven times. We were seven times British, seven times French until 1815 when Napoleon decided to give us, hand us over to the um, British. Even if we were handed over to um, the British, a lot of the town, cities, and village um, French names remained. We just anglicized it. Um, a lot of the culture is still a mixture of African with a drop of French. And so, and then we have the Roman Catholicism. So the Church of England never really took foot in St. Lucia. I mean, there are Anglicans in St. Lucia. We do have a couple of Anglican churches and we do have primary schools. We do have a primary school that's Anglican in the capital city. But it never really took root. And then we speak Patois, French Creole, which is Creole, which is it's a, it's a language on its own. But a lot of the syntax is based on French and African languages and with a drop of indigenous people languages. A lot of our culture is still African and with the little drop of the French. But yeah, but when the British took over... We were still heavily Frenchanized, if such a there's a word. So Francophone, French, yeah, Frenchified. <laughs> I'm making up my own word. And they didn't really do much until later. They for the first 10, 20, 30 years of having the island fully to themselves, they didn't really do anything until like thirty years later or so. But um so we are predominantly Roman Catholic. I'm going off to Roman Catholic because that's a result of the French. We used to be 90% Catholic, but now we're like 60 or 70% now because a lot of people are now converting to Protestantism, not necessarily Church of England or Methodist. A lot of people think that Anglicans and Methodists are Catholic light. So they're converting to Seventh-day Adventists and Pentecostals. <laughs> I see. So it's it's getting a little bit more diverse. Yeah, we even have Jews here and we have Muslims. And then last time I checked some of the census, it says that we have a small, tiny, tiny set of amount of people who are identifying as non-religious. And I've, I've been told that we have Buddhists here. I haven't seen any, but I was told we have. We have Hinduism and the Hindus, most of the Indians that came from India to Sinatra after after slavery, you know that the Europeans went to Asia, India, and China to get them to come over for indentured servitude. But the Indians came to St. Lucia. The majority of the Indians converted to Christianity, but there was still a small amount that retained Hinduism. But a lot of the Hinduism also is from Indians who are coming from Trinidad or India itself. But we do have Hinduism here. Is there a significant amount of people who follow Caribbean, indigenous, or African diaspora religions in the area? Well, um, there are people who do practice obia, 
but um, it gets a bad name because people believe that Obia is bad. But those of us who know better know that Obia is not bad, and all religion can be used for good or bad. Of course, Christianity is is no exception to that. There are people who practice it. We know that people who practice it, but the majority of Saint Lucian, well, I would say the majority. That's making a general statement, but. Many St. Lucian believe that Obia is evil. So what is Obia? I can't really, really say much, but Obia is not, uh, it's kind of difficult to define, but it's similar to um, other African retention religions, such as Haitian, Voodoo, or Santiara, that it includes communication with the ancestors and spirits and healing rituals, but it differs from um, Voodoo and Santiara because there's no canon of gods or deities that is worship. And usually it's more individual action rather than co- people co- coming together as a collective to do a ceremony or offering. The thing about Obia also is that many people who practice Obia also are Christians. So would you say that there's a tension between Christian communities and Opia beliefs and even between, you know, those two religions and individual peoples and households? I would not know because there's not really, I don't feel any religious tension, really. It's just that, you know, if I say I'm going to Opia, man, people definitely will think, oh, I'm going to do evil. (laughs) But it's not necessarily, oh, they're going to, like, kill me or anything like that. So it's not really, it's like, oh, my God, you... You're going to OBM and what for? So it's not really a tension per se. It's just that if you say that you're going to OBM a person, that means you want to do evil on somebody. How did your um, heroine's Catholic religion affect her relationship with the Laja Bless in your book? Since she's a mythical entity from a different religious or folkloric background, like was religion an issue these characters had to deal with? My heroine is very educated, so... <laughs> She's an anthropologist. She didn't believe in these stuff at first. She was teaching in England, and I'm giving too much of the story. (laughs) But she was teaching overseas, and she came back. She wanted to do some research on our indigenous people, which are called the Kalingos or Caribs. And when she started doing research on the indigenous people, she met up with the Lajabless. She didn't believe it at first, but... (laughs) (laughs) I love paranormal romances like that, where people don't believe in necessarily believe in whatever the magical realm is and then get introduced to it. Yeah, because she's, a, she's a, a social scientist. So, you know, she doesn't believe in that. And her relatives don't believe in that. Her friends, even though her, her best friend is a, a devout Catholic, just like her, their best friend doesn't believe in it either. But the thing about Catholicism, though, even though that the worship is mystical and mysterious, Catholicism can be sometimes very scientific and intellectual because you know that in, in the Catholic doctrine, we don't believe that the world was created in seven days. The Catholic doctrine actually supports evolution. No, there's, there's, been, there's been some evolution in, in the church. Let's talk about the ladies of the Bible. What are some of your favorite biblical heroines and why? I like Jezebel. Oh, I was going to ask you about her, but I didn't put it in the question, so I'm so glad you're talking about her. <laughs> I think she gets a bad rap in the Bible, because uh, when you look her up and research, well, there's not much to research. I just feel like the Bible, they demonize foreign women, strong and powerful foreign women. The ancient Romans did that a lot, too. The Romans are not the only ones doing it they're just more powerful to do it but the ancient israels did it can you imagine you being this foreign woman taking away well she and her husband look like from the biblical account they look like they were in love because when he was sad she was wondering why he's sad <laughs> but yeah this woman is taken away from a home and she must because she's marrying this man who's worshiped this one god she must stop worshiping her gods babel and Esher. so obviously she's not israel so she's not going to worship yahweh or god she's going to institute the worship of babel and Esher, and her husband's going to let her because again she's foreigner so obviously 
to please his wife to make sure that she doesn't miss home he's going to let her do whatever she wants to do and to be tolerant of someone else's culture. Yeah. And I think that the Bible does say that she kills prophets of Yahweh. But I think that's them, the Bible just demonizing this foreign woman. So for people who don't know what happened to Jezebel, what happened to her? Well, um, she got eaten by dogs. Like the prophet, <laughs> the prophet Elijah said she would. And her story is in First Kings sixteen thirty one. Jezebel is always one of the ones I feel the same way Princess does. I'm like, I think she just gets a, a real bum rap. Okay, maybe she killed some prophets. Maybe she didn't. She didn't get to tell her story. She was eaten by dogs. We don't know the other side of it. But the reality is she was a foreign woman who came to a different city, a different place. She cared about her husband. Her husband cared about her. And he allowed her to institute the worship of her gods alongside the worship of his, like in a different world. In today's world, we would think that's a good thing that happened. But because that's not the way the story goes, she's a villainess. And you know who gets a bad rap for um, letting his wives move him away from the worship of Yahweh God? Solomon. King Solomon. King Solomon, you know, everybody, the Bible says that he was the wisest and the richest man, whatever. But then the Bible goes on saying that he lost his way because of all the women he was marrying. He married Pharaoh's daughter and a whole bunch of women. Because of the foreign women, he started worshipping the gods of his foreign wives. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, he's being multicultural and he's he's marrying these women, taking them from their homes, and he's actually being a supportive husband. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like he's just being introduced to their cultures and their religions and kind of being into it. Yeah, but that's what they say. That's why his rule went down because of the foreign women he married and he worshipping all these women. I think like Solomon gets a bad rap. He was actually, I feel like he was actually progressive for his time. What's interesting too is I'm hearing a thread about women being people who draw, I guess, righteous men away from their religion just by worshipping other religions and having those men be interested in them. And then the, the concept of foreign women also comes up in the biblical books of Ezra and Nemia because when they come back from their exile, they come they come back in the land. Not all of them, but they come the elite comes back into the land and then a lot of people a lot of the people that remain married foreigners, foreign women. And so Ezra and Nemia to make sure that the Israelite worship and the Jewish worship is pure, decides to tell the people who married foreign women to send them back. Women, again, foreign women, to be exact, who worship different gods and what different cultures are always demonized. But one of my favorite women in the Bible would be Rahab. In the book of Joshua, when the Israelites are going on and going to the land, remember they were in Egypt as slaves in the Bible. If you know the whole Exodus story, if you grew up Christian, you heard about the whole Exodus story about, oh, let my people go and all that kind of thing. So after they come out of Egypt, God tells them that the land of Cana is theirs. So they go and then Joshua sends spies and then Rahab ties the spies from her people and then she makes the spies promise her when they come destroy the city, save her. The spies tell her, I think it was a rope they told her to pull out to let them know it was or a light. I can't remember the exact thing. They told her to do something so that they will know. If they don't come by her, the soldiers will know not to hurt her, her and her family. And so when the Israelite army entered um, Cana, the chosen land, they told Joshua about Rahab and... She was spared. And she's actually in Jesus's lineage. I like her because some people describe her as a a betrayer of her people. But I suggest seeing her doing what she needed to do to survive. Because, you know, she saw a losing battle. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do to survive. And so she did what she needed to do to survive. And she became one of the women in Jesus's lineage. And there's another woman I like. Tamar in Genesis. Judah one of is it Jacob's or Jacob's sons now he's 
grown and old already by this time. Tema marries several of his sons, but every time his sons keep dying. So his last baby son, he promises her that she can marry him, but he, he breaks his word because you know he's he's thinking, oh, all my sons that you've been married to have died, so maybe you're the problem. So, but you know, in those days, women needed to have a child so that they could be protected in society. So Tema knew what she did when she realized Judah was not going to make her marry his baby son. She went and disguised herself as a prostitute, lady of the night, and she tricked him and she slept with him, but he didn't know who she, she was. And then he gave her something to, if anything comes up, that she can show that they knew each other, whatever, whatever. Anyway, he doesn't recognize her when she's out of the prostitute costume or whatever. So Tema gets pregnant and everybody's calling for her to be stoned. And then she decides, I know who the father is. <laughs> and she, should, she takes out the thing that Judah gave her. And then Judah says, I was wrong. She is righteous. <laughs> so he's actually taking responsibility for the pregnancy. Well, that that's that's good for the time, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, the stoning is bad. Like, that part is bad. <laughs> it's right in those days. <laughs> What do you think about um, Salome? My master's thesis was on Salome. My master's thesis was on a feminist interpretation of Mark 6. That's where Salome dances for um, Herod. A feminist interpretation of Mark 6. Was Salome a child or was she a seductress? I use the historical critical method, sexual ethics, and the feminist biblical interpretation. That was my master's thesis. When you look at her, how she's interpreted, she's interpreted as this seductress, that it's her fault that all this shit is happening. I think she's depicted in True Blood. I think the fifth and sixth season, remember True Blood? It should be like this vampire show, True Blood. In the fifth and sixth um, season, she's the main villain there. And she's saying that she was forced to be put in bed in her stepfather's bed. Sleep with her. her mother forced her to be sleeping with her stepfather. And you kind of feel sorry for her, but then she's a villain. Even though, like, True Blood tried to make her more sympathetic, she still came out being this villainous vampire that kills everyone, anybody. Yeah. Salome gets a bad rap. She's an innocent child, innocent girl. People blame her for her mother's and Herod's actions. I mean, she's famously involved in the um, beheading of John the Baptist. She's the one who calls for his head on a silver platter, which I find so fascinating because we see other women in antiquity, uh, particularly related to the Roman Empire, who essentially wanted the same thing. A really good example is Fulvia. She wanted um, Cicero's uh, silver tongue with a hairpin through it. And you can see famous paintings of her with his head on a platter. And I think the other one is um, Tamiris. So I feel like there might have been something culturally in the exchange going on around the same time, because the New Testament is contemporary to everyone except probably um, Fulvia. But the thing about it, Salome... Yes, she did ask for John the Baptist's head on the plaza, but her mother told her to ask for the head of John the Baptist. So I'm thinking Salome cannot be, since Salome is not married, she's cannot be more than 12 at the time. She cannot be more than 12. So obviously she probably thinks this little girl is thinking, my mother asked for John the Baptist on the head of the plaza, and I know my mom hates John the Baptist, so wouldn't it be good to give her his head on a silver platter? I also think one of the things to remember at this point in time is their religion was not Christian. So John the Baptist, even though he was not necessarily doing anything wrong, probably there was a lot of discontent going around with people who were following him because he was challenging the ideas of the royal status quo or just the status quo at the time. So you could see he might have been disruptive. He was, but what he was challenging according to the New Testament and according to historical background, is the marriage of Herod and Salome's mother because she was married to um, Herod's brother. She was married to Herod's brother. But get this, 
They're so incestuous. She was Herod's half niece. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, that doesn't shock me at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> In all the historical background, even though the New Testament doesn't say that they're half niece, but the New Testament does say that John the Baptist was calling out that marriage. You do all the historical background, you'd be like, okay, now I see why this woman wants him gone. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it does make sense. And, and you know, marriage, like incestuous marriages between uncles and nieces is kind of something that definitely happened in other ancient cultures that they were kind of building on. I mean, it happened in ancient Rome with um, Claudius and Agrippina the Younger. The Ptolemies married their nieces a lot. It's obviously gross, but there was historical precedent for it. This um, chapter happened during, under the reign of Augustus. So Augustus was, you know, Augustus was very had on what he deemed as family, not family values. Like he, he didn't like adultery. He did not like incest and everything like that. He had that whole morality code. Yeah. That's why he even exiled his own daughter and granddaughter. Although we don't know what she, what, what, the, what his daughter did, but you can assume based on that's probably what she did. <laughs> she didn't want to stay married to the person that he married her to was part of it. That too, but she know there were there were rumors of her sleeping around. Although historians do say that Augustus had known about it for years, he had known about it before, but he never did anything about it. It's only because Ovid was involved, <laughs> so so it was big drama. <laughs> Whatever happened, we will never know. <laughs> Whatever happened, Augustus decided, you know what, she got to go. But I also think it's about controlling her, like her agency and the fact that she didn't want to listen to her father's more morality rules was something that Augustus like couldn't abide by. If not, if he wants to build a rule where men are in control of women and what they do. That too, but it's kind of surprising because historians, even contemporaries of his time were saying that he did have a great affection for his daughter. Contemporary historians say that two people that gives him grief Julia and Rome. <laughs> right. And then, and then he exiled her to Pandateria, which is not, not the best place to be exiled to. It's not a vacation. I think a lot of it had to do with Livia, too. I think that she had, had something to do with it. Livia was an interesting one, because like, she was kind of, she was kind of a, um, a real mover and shaker in her own right. Right, Jen? Oh, yeah. I mean, she essentially decided she was going to go after Augustus. She was, like, very pregnant with another man's child. She'd already had a son with another guy. And I think her husband was, like, he was off fighting or doing something, and she was, like, moving in for Augustus. And he married her. He married her. He divorced his wife the day Julia was born and married Livia. Yeah, and his only biological child. The Julian Claudians deserve their own soap opera. They are wild. It's, it's so much drama, you guys. I know. I feel like if Julius Caesar had survived, we'll be talking about a different history now. <laughs> and I think he was better for Cleopatra than Mark Antony. That is my opinion. Julius Caesar had survived. Cleopatra and, and Julius Caesar would have rewritten the ancient world because she was just so clever and she just needed someone who was on her level to manipulate and move the same way she could. Like, I love Mark Antony. He is just a war elephant mess of a guy who's kind of like a... He's a tank, right? You point him in a direction, you give him the orders and he can get the job done. But if he has no direction, like, he's just a mess. And I feel like Cleopatra had so much labor just getting him to do the basics. He had the attention span of a fly. He's married to her one minute, then he's married to Octavia the next minute, and then he's back with her. And Yeah, and then a lot of the relationship was based on debauchery and sex. And they spent a lot of money, Cleopatra. And I mean, not that she didn't spend a lot of money when she was with Caesar, but... It was just different. Yeah, like their their connection was um, intellectual, you know. I mean, I'm sure it was sexual, too, because they did have like nine months locked in a palace having sex on every available surface, I'm sure. But like, but her connection to Julius Caesar, like in the end was like when he's in Rome, he's making all these changes to the calendar and changes to the government that are clearly based on conversations that he'd had with Cleopatra, because that's how she did things. I'm just surprised he didn't name his son as heir with Cleopatra instead of Octanian. Who knows? Maybe he didn't have time to change a will. He didn't know. Maybe he was going to. Who knows? 
Yeah, there's also like the question of her safety, you know, if he had done that, like, would she have been safe in Rome if he had changed his will that way? Like, I've seen it interpreted that way. I think part of it was time. I think he needed a little more time as dictator for life. I think if he was two or three years into it, he could have named his son heir, because people would be happy with his rule. But he was he was moving them out of a republic into something where one person is in charge, like he was putting a big target on his back. I think he was trying maybe to protect that child. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, it was to protect his own rule. Which continued with Julius Caesar. <laughs> but did he really protect that child by not naming the thing? Because in the end, Octavian killed it, killed him. So in the end, he didn't protect anybody, really. Cleopatra protected herself. But even if he'd named it, you look at, like, um, Caligula and I think it's Gemellus. Like, immediately Caligula's like, at the soonest convenience, I'm killing this kid who's my co-heir. He's gone. And then he just waited, and then he killed the kid. So I kind of think even naming someone doesn't make you safe. True. True, true, true. But I just think, like, because when Cleopatra came into Rome, he had a statue. He put it in his, one of his best villas, and he had a, a statue named for her or built for her or something he did. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It was a statue of, I think it was Isis. Was it Isis or Venus? Like, because she was kind of conflated with both. Because remember, he was descended from Venus. <laughs> it was either like Isis or Isis and Venus at the same time. I forget. It's been a while since we did those episodes. I think that in him doing that, he was making it clear that I'm going to be with this woman. <laughs> he had a wife who was not her, who was in the same city as Cleopatra. Like, they were both in Rome. And he was trying to change the law so he could have two wives when he was killed, remember? So I think that was pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, he's, he was trying to say, I'm going to be with this woman. So that's why I probably think that if he had lived longer, he probably would have named, what's his, um, Caesarian? Caesarian, yeah. Yeah, I the statue, even though that he didn't name Caesarian heir, having Cleopatra in the one of the best villas, Having a statue of Venus or Isis or we don't know which one made for her, it's clearly he's saying, I'm going to be with this woman for a very long time. And so if he had had time, like you say, two or three years, four years, five years down the line as dictator of Rome, he was going to change his will. But we'll never know. So. <laughs> So there's one more lady um, in the Bible, well, maybe two, but definitely one that I want to get to, and that's Lilith. And I don't think she's exactly in the Bible, she's just in biblical lore. She gets a bad rap everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are agreeing. <laughs> she's not in the Bible per se, she's just in one verse as a demon, in Isaiah, I think, um, but she's in Jewish folklore. She's Adam's first wife, and depending on the, st she was created the same way as Adam. And if you look at the Bible, the Genesis thing, there are two creation stories. There is the creation of man. God creates man the same way. The next creation story of Eve, God um, creates Adam and Eve and takes the, the rib from Adam. So there are two creation stories in um, the Bible. So Lilith is his first wife. Um, the Jewish um, Midrash, the, the Jewish philosophers and uh, rabbis were trying to find a way to explain the two genesis the two genesis creation of man stories i think i think it's because one of the stories is that she didn't want to she wanted to be on top adam didn't want her to be on top adam was very vanilla and boring we get it <laughs> <laughs> adam said no i'm the man and so she ran she she left the garden god tried to take her back she said no i don't want to be controlled by this man and she left and she Came a demon, mated with demon, and had demon babies, depending on who you talk to. And then God decided that maybe the reason that Lilith is so strong-headed and opinionated and doesn't want to be controlled is because she was created the same way Adam was created. So let me create Eve from his rib. She gets a bad rap. So I watch mostly fantasy and, and science fiction TV shows. I don't know. I can't do any. I cannot watch normal shows. I just only watch. I do watch historical and comedy, but yeah. So, so far, Lilith has been in Shadowhunters. She's been, she's showed up briefly in Lucifer. 
I think she was in True Blood, and she was in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and she was in um, Supernatural, and some other sci-fi. And every time she's portrayed as this villainous bitch, sorry, my, my language. The brief time she appears on Lucifer, that one episode, she gives up her immortality to be human. She gives um, Lucifer her immortality ring. She wants to see why, what is it about humans that makes them want to do things for love or whatever. Didn't work out that way. Once Lucifer's, when Maze um, finds her mother, she's a bitter old woman and she dies alone as a human. But in the others, spoiler alert, those who haven't watched Lucifer. <laughs> And the other, she is just this villainous bitch. <laughs> and I'm thinking, doesn't Hollywood doesn't have anything creative? Why couldn't you just give her a backstory? Yeah, and if you look at how she is portrayed and the reason why she does what she does, it's like, okay, she broke up with her ex because the sex was bad. Why is that villainous? <laughs> I imagine that it's not just because the sex is bad. I think that's indicative of a relationship where you don't value the other person's opinion or what the other person might want out of the relationship. It's just the extreme of, like, the sex is also really bad. You know, that's what the Bible is telling us. She wants to take control, you know? Yeah, it's like, well, he wants to dominate her in every way. I mean, well, that's a really good reason to break up with somebody. Why is that Why is that villainous? Like, okay, I guess she does have a lot of demon babies and create a demon army. But, like, that's totally understandable given the circumstances. But look, I think, I think we can all, like, not to be too mean on Adam, although he does deserve it. I think we can all respect the fact that, like, Adam isn't the brightest bulb in the in the whatever, or the brightest light in the sky or whatever you want to say here. Because his second wife... He also gets the blame for everything that goes wrong. Like, he has every bit where he could be like, no, I'm not going to try that fruit of forbidden knowledge. Like, you've done that. That's on you. But instead, he's like, yeah, I'll try it and then I'll blame you. You're also going to have an awful life being married to someone who is not able to stand up for the people they love and care about and just kind of not the best. I could even categorize Eve as someone in the Bible who gets a bad rap because what does she do wrong? She wants knowledge. Like, God puts a tree in plain sight with an apple on it and tells everyone not to eat the apple, which, of course, is going to make everyone want to eat the apple. And she wants to know things. Like, she wants to know about the world. She wants knowledge, so she eats the apple. Like, of course she does. Human nature. Yeah, and that, you know, he makes an appearance on season six of Lucifer. Adam, spoiler alert, he's not the sharpest tool <laughs> he's not I think they did a good job with him because he's not you're just like okay but you're also blaming all the other people for the poor decisions you make all the time because all the way back to the beginning like it's always someone else's fault that you were explicitly told not to do something you did something and don't want to take responsibility for it yeah they had him pegged Lucifer did a good job portraying him <laughs> whoever wrote the story was like trying to say that women should not should not have a first for knowledge or wisdom or education. That's basically, and it wasn't an apple. We don't know what the fruit was. <laughs> yeah, it could, we always say apple, but it could have been a pomegranate. It could have been pear. We don't know what it was. It could be a fruit because it depends on what they say. That it could, we definitely know it's an apple because apples don't grow in that area. It could be a fig. <laughs> it was basically women not having, women shouldn't want to have um, knowledge or um, education or wisdom and then Eve gets the bad rap gets the worst punishment that's why they say that women have severe period pains and when we push out children we labor and then we'll be under control of our ma the man that's the punishment no and it also absolves men of feeling any kind of guilt or responsibility about things like women's health which we see repeated in how women's health is still in today's day and age. It's not equal across all of the countries and it's not treated in the same way as men's health. No, it's not. But before we go, I want to talk about two women in the Bible. In Genesis, you know, Jacob has two wives, Rachel and Leah. Rachel is the one he loves and their father tricked him into marrying Leah. Although I don't think necessarily that Jacob was tricked. I mean, you love this woman so much. When he was having sexual 
relations with a sister, obviously you're going, you should know, you, you've probably seen the face. <laughs> it, it is a little bit unbelievable. He didn't know, well, he didn't know when he married her because she was wearing a veil, theoretically. But then is the story also that he didn't know when they were sleeping together? Basically, until the next morning, the next morning he realized that he was strict. So he's also like Adam, not the sharpest tool in the shed. And he goes to their father and says he want, he asked for um, Rachel. And their father was like, well, I cannot just marry my youngest daughter before my oldest daughter. So Rachel's father is like, you have to work seven more years for Rachel. And he worked seven more years for Rachel. But what interests me about that story is that when they were leaving Rachel and Leah's father, Rachel took some figurines of old gods. I guess they were like, you know, the women who had their own little gods that they were worshipping back in those days in the household gods. And then her father was like, somebody stole these idols. And then Rachel hid them. Jacob didn't know it was her. But Jacob cursed and said, whoever took those idols will be cursed. One of the reasons that some people say that Rachel died so young after Benjamin because of that curse. So I'm like... Even though you don't know it was her that took it. You married into this culture. We married women who had their own culture, their own gods. And you're cursing. Yes, you don't know it was her. But you're cursing them because they took idols. Yes, stealing is wrong. But they took idols from their culture so that they could keep. You know, because they're moving. They're going to another land. So obviously they, they will want part of their culture, their religion with them. So granted, he didn't know it was Rachel, but it's still like, it's messed up. You marry these foreign women and you're saying that they cannot worship their gods. They cannot keep their heritage. Yeah, and, and that really ties into what we were talking about before, about men marrying foreign women and then ruining everything with their foreign religion. It is like seeing, you know, women, especially foreign women, but kind of women in general as like this sort of destabilizing factor in men's lives. Yeah. yeah in, in, in all fairness, Jacob didn't know it was Rachel that stole the idols. Maybe if he had known because that was a woman that he always loved. It was her he always wanted. He didn't want anybody else. He probably wouldn't have done it, but we'll never we wouldn't know. It's kind of like with Julius Caesar. We will never know. <laughs> I have a question about your thoughts on the Bible and feminism. When Jen and I talk about Christianity in our podcast, and we don't do it a lot because we're kind of focused on other areas, but we do talk a lot about how it perpetuates patriarchy, and we've talked about that a lot today as well. But is there, is there any feminism that you see in the Bible? And if so, what does it look like? I see feminism in Tema. In Genesis, same on the Jewish story. In the time she was living in, she took agency for her sexual agency. Her, she took agency of her life because she knew without a child, she was doomed. So she she did what she had to do. She took control of the situation. That is a feminist act at the time. And he listened to her, which is actually kind of woke for the time. Another instance of feminism is through the Esther and fascista story. And not Esther I'm talking about. Vashista is the feminist. Because she's telling this man, yes, you're my husband, but I'm not doing this. Oh, I don't know that story. Okay, so you know about Esther, she saves her people from being killed because she marries she's married to the king. But before the king marries Esther, he was married to this woman. Vashista, I can pronounce it properly, Vashista. And then in his drunken rages, he had this big party with all his noblemen and prime ministers. And in his drunken moods, he sends people to call on his queen to tell Vashishta, tell her to come and parade to him naked or parade herself to him in front of all his friends and boys. And he tells him she's not going to do it. And then he, he gets rid of her. Well, not kills her, and he tells her, he sends her away. And then when he sobers up, he starts missing her. So instead of calling her back, his boys are telling him, well, maybe you need to look for a new wife. So um, they tell him to get all the young maidens in the Persian Empire and bring it to the king's harem. The Bible puts it like a beauty contest 
But we all know the sexual politics of those times in the king's era. So it's basically who can sexually please the king the best. So I saw one. The Bible doesn't say it, but we know that. The Bible would not say it outright there, but come on. Esther wins, but she hides her Jewish. The king loves her the most out of all the women. I guess she pleased him the best. Um, and she hides her Jewish ancestry. And then there's this prime minister of the king, Haman, who wants to kill all the Jews. The king doesn't know what Esther is a Jew, and he doesn't know. The king is a, a ass, stupid. He's a dimwit. And so he does all this, telling the man, you can go and do this, you can go and do that. And then eventually Esther comes to him and tells him, and begs him and tells him, but I'm Jewish. Why are you basically doing that? And then he, when he realized, when the king realizes that the woman that he loves is a Jew and what's going on, he tells her he really cannot undo his edicts, but he can write a new one where the Jews defend themselves. Yeah, I remember that being like the story of Esther, but I didn't know the story of um, the king's previous wife. And it's really interesting, I feel like, the conversation around what is progressive or feminist to us now versus what does feminism look like to the ancient world. And I mean, feminism is probably the wrong word for it, but like slight advancements in women being treated more fairly. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you can... The New Testament, Jesus is kind of like a proto-feminist kind of way because he has women following him, having intellectual conversations with women. Women are the ones that are going, when they saw him raised, raised from the dead, women are the ones that are going to tell everyone that he risen from the dead. And then you have women deacons and women messengers in, in the New Testament. So Christianity, once upon a time, women did have roles in the church but eventually it got very patriarchal yeah we talked about this in some of our episodes as well like how jesus was um one of the first figures that i've seen that called for men to be sexually pure and faithful to their wives as well as women being faithful to their husbands because prior to that you know sexual ethics in ancient greece and rome was that men could sleep with lots of different people and it wasn't considered cheating. Men could kind of get away with a lot and women were, were expected to be sexually faithful to their husbands, but men weren't necessarily expected to do the same. So I could see why women would like early Christianity. I could see what it offered to women. Yeah, and then Jesus, the only thing, Jesus said that he hated adultery and the reason why he hates adultery is because marriage was the only protection for, was one of the few protections for women. So if a man commits adultery or leaves his wife, the wife is, previous wife has not much to go on. So no, she, her options are either to return to her family, which may or may not be something she can do, or she's left alone or at the mercy of her husband who has now been unfaithful and may or may not choose to keep her. Or she's under the mercy of her son if the son is old enough to take care of her. Right. She's unprotected in the world. Like, she, she can't just get a job. Yeah. So Jesus was kind of a proto-feminist there. He was like, you can't do this. And it's not because telling you cannot leave, you cannot divorce. I'm telling you, this is for the protection of the women. The women are unprotected. <laughs> exactly. Or she could find another husband, or but maybe not if her husband hasn't officially divorced her. Right? Yeah. And also, you can't just, you know, sleep with other women like, you know, Hetire, for example, and spend all your money on them and, and split your household, basically, which is what wealthy Greek and Roman men sometimes did. And it wasn't considered adultery. Although it was considered adultery during the time of Augustus. And moral code. But then by the time Jesus dies, Tiberius is emperor. And you know how that court went. That court is very full of diabarchy and all that kind of thing. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then there's the whole point in time where he just pieces out to his pleasure island, shall we call it. He was definitely not the sexually pure one, good lord. Augustus was harsh. He exiled his own daughter, but at the same time, I could see why some of the laws, he put in place some of the laws. You don't want to get the Berkeley out of out of hand. But it was mostly on the upper class. He was really keen on population growth. I remember that. Like he wanted more 
essentially more soldiers for the Roman Empire machine. And he was rewarding women and families that had a lot of children because he was like, that is that is good industrious breeding. He was mostly, he was like, he inducted laws for encourage marriage and having children. He made adultery a crime. Yeah, he did not want women, especially getting out from under control of men, from what I remember. Yeah, that too, but the men couldn't cheat either. So, <laughs> so adultery wasn't just was not just a crime for women; it was a crime for men too, upper class men. But one thing he he did that like kind of was a little harsh was he was saying that men and women who are celibate or widows who wouldn't marry will prohibited from receiving their inheritance. Right. So you had to remarry to receive your inheritance. Like you couldn't stay single and independent. Like you had to stay under the control of and in the household of a man if you were a woman. Yeah. You had to marry if you were a man. You had to marry if you were, you were, you were a man. <laughs> well, yeah. But like if you're a man, you, you have like income, right? So you have a way of supporting yourself. That's what Princess was saying. Maybe not. They wouldn't get their inheritance. So depending on how old you were and where your income was coming from, that inheritance might make a, a huge difference. Yeah, especially if you were young. It was He was specifying on young um, men and women. So if you're a young boy, young man who's just making it out to yourself in the world and you refuse to marry, you wouldn't get your inheritance. He actually put heavier taxes on unmarried men. And women without husbands, though. But he offered awards for marriage and child-rearing, but men who were um, unmarried were heavily taxed. This is like a financial incentive, like you had to get married or you're not going to afford to be... Like, it's expensive to be single. It's still expensive to be single. (laughs) (laughs) I know. You're absolutely right. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much also for letting me be here. Where can people find you online? I am on Twitter as Isles Theologian. I'm also on Instagram as the same thing, Isles Theologian. I have a Patreon, Caribbean Feminist Scholar. I'm on Facebook, but I don't use my Facebook too often so i'm mostly on twitter and instagram um i can say if you follow me on twitter follow me on instagram subscribe to my patreon you get lots of articles on mythology and history and i do also touch on mental health and sexual assault also amazing we we encourage everyone to go check that out absolutely and um yeah once again thank you so much for coming on this has been fantastic And thank you all for listening. Mm